0: We have MyQA Ion and IonRT from IBA for automated patient-specific QA for photon, electron, and proton radiotherapy. And we also have MRBox from our AI suppliers at Therapanacea, Panacea, allowing AI-powered, MR-only workflows for a more consistent and high-quality planning pathway. For SGRT,
1: To RadChat, the multi award winning first therapeutic radiographer led oncology podcast. Welcome to our artificial intelligence podcast series in collaboration with the Society College of Radiographers. My name is Joe McMahon, I'm joined by fellow host Jog Anderson. Hi, everyone. Please do go and take a look at our AI social media and check out our AI podcast episodes, all available for you to listen to. So, I'm really pleased to introduce our guest today. So, our resident AI expert, Dr. Christina Malometanou, and also Dr. Yiannis Kieratis. So, welcome, thank you so much for joining us, both of you.
2: Hello. Well, oh, thank you.
1: So, Yiannis, can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your current role, and maybe a little bit about your career pathway? It's always interesting to see how people have got to what they're doing at the moment.
2: Thank you so much. I'm really delighted to be here and uh, you're so kind to invite me and, uh, and I'm, I'm really glad to participate in this podcast. Uh, so I'm, uh, I'm Janis Kiratis, I'm, uh, I'm a director of a multidisciplinary research and innovation lab on health care and well-being uh, at the Faculty of Social Sciences at Frey University in Amsterdam, in the Netherlands. Uh, there, I'm an associate professor in organization theory and I also serve as Director of Research in the Department of Organizational uh, Sciences. I'm also an Associate Editor of BMC Public Health and Frontiers in Public Health uh, and Frontiers in in Digital Health, uh, and I specialize in, in healthcare management. So the areas where my research interests lie include the restructuring of professional role identities, the diffusion and implementation of innovations in healthcare, and organisational change, particularly the influence of of social institutions on human behaviour. So my background uh, is a bit bit weird kind of journey. Uh, So initially I was trained as a veterinary surgeon and after I completed my military service in Greece I moved to the UK. It was the time of uh, the foot and mouth outbreak uh, and I started working there as a vet for a few years. Uh, During that period I completed my Masters in Healthcare Management at the Business School of Imperial College uh, then I worked as a consultant for the World Health Organization and the World Bank uh, in funded projects in Bosnia-Herzegovina after the war. I looked at primary care reforms in that setting. Uh, I was awarded a PhD scholarship and I did my PhD at Imperial College uh, in the business school focusing on healthcare management and organization studies. Then I moved to the medical school of Imperial College where I was uh, a fellow and uh, I headed uh, a unit that focuses on management and organizational, and in the delivery of care, especially in the infection prevention and control. And I moved finally to City, University of London, where I was a senior uh, senior lecturer in health management and leadership. And I co-founded there with Professor Harris Carver from Bayes Business School, a center that focuses on, uh, on, uh, uh, innovation, uh, on innovation research. Um, and since 2019, Uh, we moved to the Netherlands. So I'm based now at Frey University in Amsterdam. Wow, that's all I can say to start with.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You definitely get the award for the most eclectic route to your current career, I'm sure.
2: (laughs) Indeed, yes. And this is kind of because we're going to talk a bit about professional roles and identities. So so these are things that, you know, normally uh, we, we retrospectively kind of uh, develop a narrative that we can explain things but things can happen spontaneously or unexpectedly and there i would never imagine the work i'm doing now um uh, 15 20 years ago i didn't even know that this this role or work or academic field existed
3: what made you think about healthcare at the beginning
2: because i I was i was originally trained and and i specialized in uh, in veteran medicine so that was i i and i I also liked looking at the bigger picture looking at their looking at their health system looking at the population rather than looking at an individual and i thought that you can make the major impact by by restructuring the whole system rather than dealing with individual patients and that attracted me to to the management part of of health systems and, and healthcare management that's why i did my master's there I was planning to go back to my clinical practice, but uh, it just happened that I was I volunteered to work on a project that was funded by the World Bank and the World Health Organization in the post-war Bosnia Herzegovina, where they were redeveloping the, the primary care system, and they were establishing the the model of family doctors in the country. And I, I looked at the implementation of that novel uh, system in the country. That that I was fascinated by by this and. Uh, uh, Following that work, uh, I was offered uh, to do some work for the World Bank and the World Health Organisation, uh, doing some consultancy work in those countries, and I did my research uh, as well in, in that setting, uh, and I was offered, I was lucky enough to be offered a scholarship from Imperial College, and I did my PhD uh, on that field, so, and the rest of his history.
1: Amazing opportunities. Yanis, I've got to ask, have you got any pets, and are you a dog or cat man? Actually,
2: no. <laughs> that's, that's, and bizarrely enough, we don't, have, we don't have a pet now. Ah,
1: oh, The veterinary side is totally no, gone. The thing is, it,
2: it wouldn't be fair for the, uh, considering our lifestyle and the time that we could really devote to the pet, like, it wouldn't be fair for the pet to, to, to be with us at this stage in our life. I think I will definitely have one a bit later. When, I, when the kids grow up and we'll be on our own and have a bit more time, then I'll definitely do and what are you, a dog or a cat, man? I like both, actually. <laughs> I used to have a cat. That was my... That was so you're
3: my a cat person. I, I've got my dog here snoring right you
2: know, now. <laughs> I, and it's a, it's a great opportunity because it makes you socialise. They, they force you to walk out every day a couple of times. So definitely when I retire, or when I get older, I will definitely get one or two dogs.
3: So, Yanis, you talked about your professional identity, which has manifested in many different roles in many different countries as well, what does that mean for healthcare professionals, and how is AI impacting this?
2: Uh, thank you, Emma. That's a, that's a really good question. Uh, so, like, if we reflect on the professional identity, that's in short, this means the way that a healthcare professional see themselves in terms of who they are and what they do, and this is important. Like, whatever you, they, someone asks you, you know, who you are. What do you do? So in principle, when you describe, for example, your work as a radiographer, as a medic, as a, as a nurse, you, you say you know, who you are, that's a big part of, of your identity, but also you relate cl- very clearly and you will start giving examples of what you actually do. So of who you are and what you do in a professional setting are very, very closely linked. So that's why we talk about I- role identity. So the identity and the role are very closely linked. So professional roles and identities are very important. It's a very important means by which we find meaning and purpose in our life. So it's essential for, for our sense of who we are and how how important we are uh, in, in and how we offer things uh, in the society and what is our status in, 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 our, in, in our social environment. So, uh, so whenever uh, there is a major change uh, such as a new technology, especially now uh, the AI situation. So whenever there is a major change, uh, we professionals, the healthcare professionals, they often have to reconsider uh, and reconfigure their professional roles and identities, who they are and what they do. And this is particularly relevant for situations where the technology speculated to replace what humans do. And this is actually the case with AI. The thing is that uh, the the identity and the role that we perform is, is not something abstract. So it relates to our routines and, and our daily activities. So the experience that we have in our daily work um, in enacting the role and the identity of, of the professional who we are can either reinforce or potentially threaten the stability of, of our identity. So if we have role affirming experiences, that means positive experiences that affirm the importance of, of, of our role and, and what, we, what we offer through performing this particular role, this can, uh, this can be really important to make us uh, feel competent and, and also uh, create a feeling of physical and emotional and psychological well-being. Whereas if experiences do not align with their perceived requirements of a role, then we feel a sense of conflict, um, and that can be a cognitive dissonance or an emotional dissonance. We feel unwell, or we feel kind of insecure about not being able to fulfill what is expected from us, uh, and that undermines the purpose and the meaningful part of, of our work. Uh, and this is really an existential threat; is not is not a, an easy an easy bit. An AI has the potential to 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 have some impact on that. Um, and in general, if we if we look at particular the types of threats from the literature in organizational theory that healthcare professionals, not just healthcare professionals, but any type of professional experience, there are three major types of threats when a major disruption, such as AI, that now threatens to replace uh, what human beings doing uh, come to force, there People, healthcare professionals, experience three types of, of, of threats. The first one is what we call uh, status loss. So they feel that they're losing in status. There is, a profession, there is an erosion in professional uh, authority. There is a feeling of losing autonomy, uh, feelings of technical incompetence, and their expertise. Our key knowledge, our really substantial knowledge, might be under threat. And with the AI, that this is the case. So status loss is the first major threat that healthcare professionals feel when there's a major disruption, such as the case of AI. A second type of, of uh, threat is what we call, what we term in organizational status field, professional values conflict. So there's a conflict with our professional values. For example, as a healthcare professional, as a radiographer, do you accept the professional responsibility and the accountability in duties that are defined by AI and you cannot understand and you cannot control fully. And these are constantly evolving. So this is something that really kind of threatens your values as a professional. And there's a third type of threat, what we call the social identity. So this is beyond our work-related um, field. And for example, uh, many people might be against privatizing or mm, commodifying healthcare. And if there is a, a change that might be associated with privatization of healthcare or commodification of healthcare that might make them uh, resist that change and, and they will not accept it. Or, for example, the ethical aspects of, of and the biases that exist with AI and the inequalities that potential use of AI might, uh, might introduce, this potential can be very threatening for, for healthcare professionals.
3: Very interesting. So, I mean, the three the core aspects that you described around psychology, I suppose, if we're looking at AI, I suppose if I ask you a very direct question then, so will AI take our jobs? Because those three aspects, status loss, conflict with our professional values and social identity, all three of those, I would feel threatened by AI because it doesn't feel, as far as I know, and what Terminator films have taught me, AI doesn't feel anything. And obviously with my own conflicts if AI can do my job better that's going to make me feel conflicted in my everyday life but then the privatization AI I'm sure costs a lot of money uh, and if that can do it quicker than I can then ten of me and my colleagues don't need to be there
2: this is a real this is a real threat to, st- to a certain extent. Uh, things, you know, they've also, they, always there is change that happens. There's new technology. It was, if you take, for example, radiography, you started with x-rays, then you had CT, then you had MRI, then you had PET scans. You, so that there's a constant evolution. In every single case, there was an existential threat to, their, to the profession. They had to completely reskill. They had to redefine. What is their role? What is the core task? What is the key expertise? There were, there, there, it was not an easy transition. People had to adjust and dynamically learn and, 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 and really uh, adapt to the new situation. And this is the case here. So there is a constant need for lifelong learning and you need to really accommodate, you need to embrace that. You cannot avoid it. It's going to happen. It's happening. It's happening in, in many fields, but it's, it's, it provides opportunities as well as, as, as being a threat. So in principle, uh, a lot of the tasks that are currently performed by healthcare professionals, they could be replaced by by AI, especially if we consider what, what tasks currently AI is very good at doing very well, excelling, are tasks that involve uh, pattern recognition or recognition of trends in data sets or correlation in data sets. These things will be done much, much better Faster, more accurately, by by AI algorithms. However, there are still tasks that uh, algorithms do not perform as well, and the human, the human aspect there becomes really important. And this this will be uh, people skills that the machines do not really perform, at least for the time being. This will include, for example, uh, imagination and the creativity that humans have. Uh, reasoning, empathy. Um, the machines will not be able or at least now they're not able to deliver on those fronts. and and the use of, of human beings and uh, it's going to be uh, inescapable. So it's not the AI is not going to replace people. They will replace some tasks and people have to find new tasks. This might be a good thing in some cases because it might take away some of the administrative burden so people can focus on the more higher value uh, tasks that they can perform. And this might be liberating uh, for, for, for the professionals but also adding value to the patients because at the end of the day, we are there as healthcare professionals to, to serve the population, to serve the patient. And if the AI can offer a better service, we have to embrace that. This is an opportunity and this is something that we we need to live with. We need to work with and, and we need to maximize the benefits that we can get out of this.
1: Yanis, everything that you commented on, take AI totally out of it. I think the workforce currently in the UK is suffering with. Um, everything that you kind of mentioned, I was thinking I know that that's what colleagues are going through at the moment because things like privatization are happening. Um, You know, we are doing very technical within radiotherapy. The technical setup is the priority, whereas a lot of people have entered the profession because they want to care and support for patients. And that time is taken away just because of how many patients we have coming through. So, you know, what you said really triggered me in terms of, you know, it highlighted what the issues are when we talk about the morale of the workforce at the moment. It really clearly depicts what's what's happening at the moment. And I see the massive opportunity of AI in being able to, as you've said, take out administrative duties, enhance and speed up maybe some of the processes so that we do get to do the jobs that maybe we went into the professions to do and potentially also personalise the care that we're able to offer To every single patient. If you have a 15 minute appointment with a patient, you know, to be able to speed up the technical elements and then spend 10 minutes caring for that patient, talking to that patient, supporting them, offering public health guidance, you know, that kind of thing must be really, really empowering. So I definitely see from the kind of positives that you've described having a massive impact on a really
2: tired workforce at the moment. No, uh, absolutely. And and there are major structural things that we cannot, uh, for example, healthcare as it currently stands, not just in the UK, but most of the developed countries, uh, it's unsustainable. So we definitely need to make a major change. It's not restructuring. Restructuring is not good enough. We need to rethink fundamentally the way we deliver care. And we need to focus more on the health aspect rather than on the sickness service. So we need to focus on health and well-being. This is why in the the newly established lab that I'm directing, I put the emphasis on on this kind of restructuring that we need to make in the system. And and this type of restructuring needs to focus us more on the health, on the prevention, on on the well-being of the population, and, and slightly move away from the sickness service. And there's fundamental there are fundamental issues about uh, unsustainable resource spending in healthcare. We offer we we spend more than 10% on average of our GDP on, on healthcare and this is going to increase exponentially in the in, in the years to come. We have an aging population chronic chronic illnesses are becoming more prevalent. The the demand increases substantially and at the same time, there is a, a huge shortage of workforce, which is going only to exaggerate, as you mentioned, Joe. And and against that, we have to do something drastic. AI might be a very good tool that will enable us to do that.
3: And Christina, thinking from the, I suppose, the radiographer side, um, especially in the UK and professional identity, what does that mean to you? I suppose coming from your lecturing angle as well.
4: Yeah, thank you for that great question, Laman. I think um, over the last three years, I have given a lot of lectures, and one of the questions that everyone was asking, whether they were students or practitioners, at the end it was, so how many years do we have until AI takes our jobs? And from that question, because it kept on coming, and kept coming, and then at, at some point I started adding this slide at the end, because I knew it was going to come, so I wanted to address it before it's coming. I thought we should do something about um, that, like a type of research. So we are actually, we, we currently have with Yanis uh, an active project funded by the Society and College of Radiographers, uh, which is about evaluating the impact of AI on our professions, uh, radiography, diagnostic, therapeutic, Uh, in the UK, but also in Europe, because we have also the endorsement of the FRS for that project. So the answer to your question, what it means to our profession's identity, uh, I can give it fully in probably 18 months time where where all the data can be analysed, but I, I can give you some snippets. So we have done... We have done some focus groups discussions. We have done some interviews with, uh, with leaders, uh, you know, um, academic leaders, practice leaders in the UK and Europe. And one of the things, I mean, there are two things that stuck with me. One person who is a clinical practitioner said, I don't really worry about what AI will do to my profession because I'm not in the profession to worry about my profession's sustainability. I'm here to care for the patients. And if AI is good for the patients, then my profession is doing what it's supposed to do. And I'm going to go with AI and do what AI needs to be done because this is going to serve my patients. So I think this is, this is quite nice to hear because like Joe said, we are here for the patients. Yes, we are, we are drawn into healthcare, a very challenging field where we see people at their most vulnerable states, you know, the infirm and people who are, you know, with in oncology, particularly you guys, you see the most difficult patients. Yes, that the the ones that have the most challenging uh, conditions. So that was one thing that stuck with me. And the other sti- thing that stuck with me during the interview stage was one of the um one of the leads of a radiotherapy department. I asked I asked him. So now that AI is going to come in uh, are you going to be you know delivering the service much quicker and he said actually now that AI comes in we can start having a lunch break because the services are so overwhelmed and the practitioners are so you know overworked that the work life balance goes through the window particularly now after the pandemic so actually If AI materializes in the ways we hope, because it doesn't always materialize in reducing the time. Sometimes AI implementation, I have seen, is actually create more complex workflows and people have to learn. And then it takes longer than the standard workflow. So this is is not desirable we would like ai to work in the way we hope it works so basically we hope that ai will make things faster smoother better more efficient so if it works like that then people can start having a life while they work you know they can actually not spend their night doing uh, planning for at-risk organs or they can just have a break and have a have a have, have some water you know that's what they said we want to have a break and they don't have breaks at the moment so the workflows are so full that people cannot have um, you know, decent work-life balance in their workspace. Uh, so that's these are the things that people said to us, and I I do want AI to go really well, I, and I know that humanity somehow magically finds a way to to bring on more tasks and make we make our lives complicated. I mean, the wheel was invented and then it was electricity. And before that was fire. And we still have more than we can manage, you know, in our in our week. And I I don't worry about being replaced. I just my only worry is that will AI make it in a way that will deliver better clinical outcomes for the patients and also better staff well being one of the things we say Uh, And what I say when I teach is like, imagine rotas and shifts being optimized for staff based on their caring responsibilities. So moms and dads who have children, they don't have to run like crazy in the morning in the rush hour, but they can start at 10 and they can go without going sweat in their workspace. Or if someone is fasting because of their beliefs, they can have a different program during that time because AI will know when to put that right timing. You know. So I think it's important to think about our human capital in healthcare as well when it comes to AI. I don't worry about professional identity because I know that people who come into healthcare... We don't go for the money, we don't go for the fame, we go to serve, we, we go to help others. So this is something you cannot change. And for professions that have such a profound impact and connection with other humans, we can never be replaced because no matter how clever the AI will become in five or 10 years, AI cannot detect the fear or the anxiety in someone's eyes who goes um, undergoes cancer treatment. And they will not be able to touch in the same way that a human can touch the shoulder or say, it's fine, don't worry, we, I'm with you, we, we, we've got this, it will be fine. And you know, and speak to them if they see them sweating from anxiety. You know, they, there are so many different things that humans' perception enables us to deliver the optimal care that machines cannot do. Machines are only clever for a specific context and they're, it's very difficult for them to respond to, to stimuli that go beyond the specific scenario the machine is trained on, yes, the AI is trained on. So for instance, for chest X-rays, uh, I mean, the machines will be getting better and better, but there will always be a, a difference, a challenging situation that the machine has not been prepared for. Uh, for chest X-rays, for instance, if there are any lines or any artifacts, then the AI algorithms are getting confused and they cannot really detect the pathology. And then they create AI algorithms that can detect these lines and they can be prepared. But our lives and our interactions as humans are so complex that I don't think AI can really replace us. What I think can happen is we need to be more agile to learn more about AI, to be involved in research about AI and develop our own evidence base in our own little corner that is called radiography. Uh, But also and be there to work with the patients and we can be doing so many different things in so many different ways for instance the validation of ai the human in the loop uh, aspect that you have someone who validates what ai spits out and can say oh this this makes sense or actually wait this doesn't make sense as a validator an evaluator um the, we can also be the ones who develop with the computer scientists, with the clinical practitioners, with the patients, new innovations on AI, because we are at the front line and we can see what is challenging. You know, we can say, actually, this doesn't work. It's too slow. It's, it's too inaccurate. Uh, theoretically, it might be nice, but actually, when you use that in practice, it doesn't really work. So we can be the ones who create innovations with the patients because we are on the interface between technology and the patient. And this is an amazing place to be in this time in AI. Uh, Some people might be leading their own companies, you know, and they can create solutions like radiographers. We have such such an amazing skill set. Uh, and but my, I might be biased, but actually I do really believe that. I really no, believe... surely
1: not biased, Christina.
4: <laughs> I really believe that the interface between technology and the humans at such a you know, disruptive time for technology, it's the best place to be. Someone was asking, I think there were some of our colleagues, radiologists, they were asking is this a good profession to continue on, like radiology or radiography? And I said, this is the best profession to be on because this is where all the developments happen now. So I don't really worry. Uh, And I will be able with Yanis and our huge network of colleagues to share more information in the coming two years or or more, because now we are um, launching a survey we have launched that a few a few weeks ago and we will launch a new one uh, with all the European translations now in German, French, Italian, Spanish and Greek, as well as English, uh, to understand more about how people feel about AI in radiography across Europe. And we would like to particularly ask the opinions of students whose lives, whose professional lives will be vastly affected by that change, yes, because I am halfway in my career. Uh, but those who start now, they will be mostly affected. There are so many new roles in there, many research roles, many educational roles, and one of the things that only those who will get the right education on AI can perform is the AI ambassador, the AI champion, who can actually be the translator of AI terminologies into other healthcare practitioners. And this can be anyone, anyone of us, anyone of the radiologists or the physicists, provided we have enough education around it.
3: And Yanis, how can we safeguard our profession and patients from AI?
2: Right, I think, first of all, I, I have to agree 100% with what Christina mentioned. And I think this is, these are really great examples of um of what what as a profession you can do to embrace uh, to embrace the, uh, the, the the development the disruptive change that AI brings, so in principle you have to develop this kind of narratives. This you need to use this rhetorical strategies that Christina is just demonstrating now to give meaning and and connect it to with a new value system with an existing value system. What is important for people? Why would you Why would you engage with uh, with AI? Why would you need to spend this extra effort? And, and really make that change to happen because it is that something inside you tells you that this is the right thing to do it's about caring for the patient it's about what what why did you go there and, and, and do this job in the first in the first case most of the people that they are into this caring business they don't do it just for the money or the status they do it because they feel it's a call it's it's a call that, that you have a, uh, you have a need to to, to make your to, to have a purposeful job and, and, and you're there to, to offer it to the society, to offer it to the most vulnerable, to people that are kind of patients, they're in a very difficult moment in their life. Uh, and, and everyone uh, really, when, when you're at that really low moment, you, you need as much support as you can get. And if you're there to help, that feeling that of purpose and fulfillment that you get is, is kind of irreplaceable. And and you you need to just get back to the humane aspect of of the profession and really inspire what's happening. But also, it's the technical bits that that Christina mentioned, that you know people are many many of the people that want into professional like professions like radiographers, they are also a bit of techie geeks. They they really like technology and they and they really want to 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 engage with it. So this is another opportunity. This is kind of you have so many so many different things that you can do now so many opportunities really opening up uh, and you can even enhance your status you can really become even more central and essential to the new uh, to the new environment this might be an opportunity it's a tool that increases your power it increases the boundaries of of the and the scope of the work that you can do not for their for the self-fulfilling uh, issue of feeling more important as a, as a professional, but you can really make a bigger difference to someone's life by really uh, incorporating all the important aspects of of the, of the new technology and what what is this, uh, this technology is offering. So, in in principle, you know it is you need to engage. You cannot ignore what I mentioned before the issues of status loss of. Conflict with professional values and with broader social values that we have about against privatization, against the ethical issues of AI. This will will be there. Are there? And you cannot ignore them. What you need to do is you need to provide resources. You need to supply resources, such as these narratives that Christina just demonstrated, that people can can see themselves in this new environment. What is possible? What is what is feasible? What is desirable? in in those circumstances and also you need to have some role models so people need to start seeing that this is feasible what can you really do it's not not in an abstract way but you can see that there are some people that they have the aptitude to take up uh, take the risk and, and and also get engaged and be in the front line so you really need those individuals in the profession to act as role models for everyone else and especially for the younger generation this is absolutely vital that you need to, to engage uh, in that in that effort. And going back to Naman's question about what uh, we can safeguard, how can we safeguard the profession uh, and the patients from AI? I think that there, there are a number of, of things that you can do. Uh, potentially, I can summarize three important points. One is that you need to establish accountability in the system. This is essential. This is fundamental. And, and to do that, you need to really uh, you need to develop guidelines and and, and regulatory oversight on, on AI. This will develop trust in the, the system. It takes time because you know whenever there is a change, the, the regulatory system uh, and the governance mechanisms take some time to adjust. So we are still you can say that the EU, for example, the Europe, Europe is championing in in the regulatory environment of, of, uh, of, of AI and creating what some people, especially the developers of AI, find as a very restrictive environment for the development and advancement of AI. But on the other hand, it increases the accountability in the system and the trust into the system. And this is something that we need to really invest. It's something unavoidable. You have to develop and establish accountability in the system. So the second aspect is that we need to build uh, capability and confidence in all actors, uh, in order so they can so healthcare professionals, for example, they can they can raise quality concerns or privacy concerns or security concerns and safety concerns that are related uh, to AI. So they need to understand the limitations and accuracy of AI systems. That means we need to train people to be able to distinguish. Correlation from causation. They need to to probably you need to upskill the 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 future workforce, especially the younger generation, into into the understanding how the algorithm works. You don't have to become a super expert, uh, computer scientist, but at least you need to understand what is the logic of, of how there how the model works, how the algorithm works, what are the inherent biases that you can identify in a system, uh, and you need to start. Uh, Start, start reflecting on the, on how the, the overall structure of, of the algorithm and the networks uh, work out. So you definitely need to engage with that. And the third part is that we need to establish transparency. So it's, we need to understand how the system calculates recommendations. Whenever you see a kind of a recommendation from, or a prediction from a, an algorithmic system, you need to understand how that calculation was made. And, so, and now that becomes increasingly difficult with deep learning, that there are so many layers, it's almost impossible to, to, to figure out what's happening. So there need to be a way of explaining and following their, their, how the decisions are being made, how, what calculations have taken place. And, and, and this is really important and critical to, to really uh, uh, embed trust into how the system works.
1: Do you envisage, Yanis, that actually in the future there will be designated roles within kind of departments? Not, I know sometimes there are governance and also AI informatic type roles already within Trust. But do you think that actually with scope of practice, we may find that an AI specialist is within each of our departments to try and support that education and development and maybe some of the innovation around AI moving forwards.
2: Yes, I think I think absolutely that might be a possibility. So if you consider, um, even if you take um, a radiologist for example, so if you now you need to train a radiologist for six years, then they have to specialize for another I don't know five six years, and then they have to get some experience in the role. And once they become experienced, they can really, really work out in the system. Probably that's about, you know, 15, 20 years down the line. Then that person, in order to be an AI expert, needs to spend another 10, 15 years being hands-on and develop a real expertise in AI. Is this possible to invest someone's career 35 years to develop that unique individual? It's almost impossible. And then the counter argument would be, um, do we really need expertise in, in healthcare to develop the algorithm? Because someone can say we need very good computer scientists that they can work in any environment and they only need some context relevant information by healthcare professionals to really tailor uh, the algorithms to their needs of the particular context. Uh, this is also very difficult because, you know, as you know, for healthcare professionals, you spend a whole life to really understand the, the industry and become an expert in the in the particular industry. So, practically, I see that this is inevitable that you're going to have a team with different types of expertise. The only difference will be that now computer scientists will start becoming an, a, a regular member of, of the team. But even there, it's not just computer science because... The, the, more, the more advanced the algorithms become, then you have mathematicians, statisticians, computer scientists getting involved in this. Then you have to have a team with diverse expertise, and, and then whoever coordinates that team, that can be a crucial innovative role. About Someone needs to be not an expert in everything, having in-depth knowledge in everything, but needs to be able at least to understand the different fields and the different knowledges. For example, uh, Steve Jobs. He was not a super expert in computer science, but at least he had enough expertise to understand the the super experts, and then you could, he could he could see the bigger picture. He could see their uh, the the potential. So something similar, I would imagine, for, for for AI in healthcare. Definitely. The NDT has just
1: got a whole lot bigger. <laughs> Yanis, can I just ask, just with your kind of world health organisation experience, how do you think we can ensure that from a health equality perspective that, you know, the developed countries are those countries that can afford AI, will further develop their services, their provision, um, and yet again, creates more of an inequity across the world in terms of healthcare? Is there anything that we should be doing?
2: Yeah, this is this is definitely this is very relevant and and uh, and there is also you can see a widening divide uh, between the their, the more affluent and their the, the less affluent countries uh, in the globe. It offers, in in principle, it or the the, advance, the advancement of the internet and and maybe algorithms might offer opportunities for these countries to catch up uh, and kind of democratize a big part of the global economy, but on the other hand, the reality is that um, the, the, the developments are happening mostly with those countries being absent and their preferences, their needs are not, not necessarily captured in the cutting edge developments that happen in, in the field of AI globally for the time being. So this is something that we need to consider seriously as a global community, uh, and we need to interfere. It's not for one country or for one actor to to interfere at that level, but organizations like the WHO that you mentioned, or or similar, the, even the, even other uh, charitable organizations that uh, the Gates Foundation, for example, they, they can also play uh, play a more instrumental role in that. But it's it's something that is very important. We cannot ignore or we cannot hide under the, the carpet because it's going to be it's going to create a lot of frustration and inequality uh down the line
1: so we're reaching the end of the podcast it always goes too quickly far too quickly we've got probably a bank Numman and i've been uh, messaging the other going ask this ask this But that might need to be a whole new series, our follow-on AI series. So to end, we always ask for top tips. So I'd love to ask both Christina and Yanis, what are your top tips from kind of this episode and the content that we've covered that you'd like the audience to go away thinking about? Christina, I'll come to you first, if that's okay.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think despite the negativity of... of, um media at the moment around AI, you know, all the negative things they can find about chat, GPT, and uh, it's going to take over the world, and it's the end of, of humanity as we know it. I do think that there is always a very bright side when it comes to innovation. Um, some of the AI tools recently have found out uh, from mammography scans, uh, breast cancer, three to, six year, three to six years before it was actually if were actually developed to be visible on mammography. So this means that we can predict the development of pathology, we can prepare people better, there can be modifiable um, life factors that people can uh, engage with to, to prevent disease from happening or minimizing the impact of disease on, the, on our bodies and our um, mental health. So I do think that there's huge potential there and we need to be able to harness it um, Yanni spoke about trust and I think trust building trust around AI is really important and I think this podcast is exactly what it's doing to try and help people you know to debunk the myths so training is important like Yanni said and governance from my side
2: yeah I, I will definitely I, I would agree I have to agree with what Christina mentioned and I think this is, this is an opportunity uh, that we need to it's not, it''s not something bad that really happens with AI. It's not there another disruptive change that has to will make the world worse. Or, it's change that happens all the time. It's inevitable. Change is, is a natural thing in the world, in our lives. The only thing is that as human beings, we really uh, we have a deep innate need for stability. That's why we create in our lives a kind of a sense of stability. Uh, And and we we really like to have that and and structure and make our lives meaningful. And and we do that, for example, by establishing institutions, social institutions. And what I mean by that is you have the religion, you have their family, you have the market, you have the state. uh, And also we establish identities, who we are and what we do. And these are the anchor points that give meaning and stability in our lives. So whenever a change happens, you know, these fundamental pillars that give meaning and stability to our life, they are threatened. So this is something that we need to recognize. It happens not only now, but it happens throughout our, you know, the human history. And there are some times that when there are changes really fundamental that we can start seeing those pillars being shaking a bit. And this is the time that we reflect, uh, and and then we realize that we need to recalibrate. Uh, We need to recalibrate our social institutions, for example, what the profession is doing, the professional association. They need to provide narratives, they need to provide the resources, they need to provide role models, they need to explain, they need to engage uh, in, in creating accountability structures, increasing the capability and the confidence of people so they don't feel technically insecure, which is a natural thing to happen in, in any major change. We need to increase transparency so we have more credibility and improved trust in the in the new environment, in the new technology. And this is, this is the way forward. So we need to embrace that change. It can be bad or good, it's a, t- a tool. At the end of the day, it's how we deal with that tool. If you ignore it and, and you leave it to people that they don't care so much or they don't have the right principles maybe we, we we're not going to lead a better world. So if people that really care about their lives, about the lives of others do engage properly with this disruptive technology, that will be an opportunity to make it to make use of it for the better. And if you even if you consider what's happening now, things are not ideal. We're spending too much money on healthcare. We, we have very little impact. For example, the iatrogenic you know, deaths it used to be the sixth uh, leading cause of death in the States. So humans are also making mistakes. There is, you know, we have cognitive biases. We are very limited in our abilities and what we can do. It's not that we are now really delivering the best care. We actually, sometimes we're harming patients. We are not doing what we should be doing. And now AI can really improve parts of that. It's not going to solve all the problems. It's not the magic bullet, but it is another tool that we can use carefully and intelligently, and that can lead to huge improvements. It's up to us. So engaging, embracing it, I think is the way forward. Ignoring it, it's something that um, inescapably you will find it ahead in the future. And being, you know, being uh, following a, a very a very le, laissez-faire kind of uh, approach to to what's happening uh, I don't think it's going be uh, is going to be the solution for for, for for this so it's not the same as as some some people especially the older generation there not to everyone but it was it was a, a significant part in in all jobs that they thought okay I'm doing my training I finished I got the qualification from now on I'm going to replicate what I've learned you know in a knowledge economy this is not possible you constantly need to learn to adjust to improvise to to really revitalize yourself and this is this is is the case for the last many decades and this is now intensifying as we move more and more with more capabilities into the system and and this is the case with ai
1: an exciting time to be an educator we're slightly biased aren't we on this panel <laughs> well thank you so much again to our guests Yanis and Christina thank you for all of you for listening to Rad Chat your hosts today have been myself Jay McNamara and I'm if you're utilizing the podcast for CPD purposes consider the reflective questions posted along with links to resources and literature that we've discussed to receive your accredited CPD certificate please complete the google form linked with the podcast Thank you all so much for listening and take care.